It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. March 7th, show number 69, part two of an interview with Dr. John Medina, developmental molecular biologist, talking about the brain. This time we dive into a few different topics, including how Why the Lucky Stiff can figure out computer programming problems in his sleep. I'd like to thank Atlantic Dominion Solutions, new sponsor of the Rails podcast. ADS is a web development innovator that specializes in building user-focused Rails applications and enhancing their performance with Amazon Web Services. Now, there's a, a computer programmer familiar to the people who are going to hear this podcast who had a dream the next day, woke up and changed his computer code based on what he had thought in the dream. Do you think that maybe when we're sleeping, we really can't multitask? We're doing we're sleeping, and then then maybe our, our brain is still active and actually gets some work done at that point, at least, oh, sleep, at least for him. Oh, sleep is such an interesting story. Shall we talk about your friend? The uh, uh, um, the rule is sleep states are as important to the learning process as awake states, but it's not this truism about you're drowsy and so you can't learn as well. Uh, the truism has literally becoming true, but on the back of some very interesting data, it, it really hasn't been until the last couple of years that we actually are starting to get a handle on why we need to sleep. We need to sleep for sure. Most people count it as energy restorative. But in fact, if you do the numbers, it's not all that energy restorative. In fact, the brain is more rhythmically active at night than it is during the day, where you've got these massive slow-wave sleep followed by REM, and it goes back. Uh, you, people are twisting and moving in their beds, and you do the bioenergetics, and you see that you're getting some restoration, but it ain't a whole lot. So the real question of why it is that we need to sleep, being as how it's catastrophic to your uh, learning process go a couple of days. Uh, uh, you know, why Why do you sleep? We're finally beginning to get a handle on it. Let's do an interesting piece of data and then talk about the brain science itself. And I might pull out. Here. Let's just get one ready. This will do. This is an actual size of the brain. Here, take a look. It's your skull, dude. Congratulations. Wow. So it's not very big. About the size of a large grapefruit. It's a lot smaller than one would think. Less tasty. The uh, uh, <laughs> <put> more filler. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fat in there, doesn't it? Okay. Uh, a very interesting piece of data that you can repeat lots of different ways, and has been known for almost two decades, is this. Uh, it was done with a bunch of, I'll say, I'll take the one that was done with math students. So they're they're, they're mathematically competent. The uh, um, you teach them a math equation, how to do things a certain way. Okay. Um, and it, let's say you do it at 8 o'clock in the morning. And unbeknownst to these uh, math students, there is a much simpler algorithm. There's a much simpler way to do this problem. But you don't teach them the simpler way. You teach them the more bonehead, uh, less elegant way to figure out the problem. And the question that the researchers were really asking was, what is the percent chance that the kids will spontaneously come up with a better way all by themselves? So you, you dose them with having them do the problems throughout the day. And then you ask at the end of the day how many of them came up with the uh, algorithm, and the answer is about 20% of the population. Okay, Not great, but not bad. It's just there. Uh, if you do the same experiment, but now it's a 12-hour it's hour experiment, 8 o'clock in the morning and 8 o'clock in the evening would be the last test. Okay, If you do that exact same experiment, but now you teach them in the evening, 
and you include in that 12 hours an eight-hour pulse of sleep. You familiar with this? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can see where this is going. Yeah, and then you ask how many of them in the morning after they've woken up and they've just hit the problem again, how many of them have spontaneously come up with it? The answer is 65%. You easily get anywhere, usually it's about a, uh, anywhere from a 2.8 to 3x greater spontaneous creativity if they've had a chance to sleep on it than if they don't. You know what? That's been known for years. We've never taken advantage of it. For example, in a class, uh, I sometimes will teach a math class, and the fundamental theorem of calculus is often tough for kids. I thought, okay, if we want to do something like this, you know, we ought to take them out on a calculus retreat. And I would teach it at 8 o'clock at night, and then in the morning they could, you know, start over, those kinds of things. So the hint was that there was something going on with sleep that wasn't necessarily energy restorative. In fact, if you think about it for a second, there's some kind of processing going on because at 3x better creativity, you've got all kinds of things going on. So once again, this idea that sleep is not energy restorative is uh, uh, gains credence here. All right, let's do some rats, and then we can talk about the human studies uh, uh, because you're going to see the exact same thing in humans that you see in rats. This is what was done. You put a bunch of electrodes in a rat's brain. You have to surgically put them on, or you can do surface. There's lots of ways to do this. And then you teach them to run through a maze. And as they run through the maze, you begin to see, after they've learned it, and it can take a lot of trials for a, a rat to learn, or a mouse to learn, a uh, lab rodent is a better way to say it, uh, 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 through the maze. What you'll see is that the brain will come up with a brain-specific algorithm that is specific for the map of the maze. And you can see it every time the rat starts to go through the maze, they'll deploy the algorithm. Does that make sense? So you actually have a maze specific. It's not a signal. To, there's, it's, there's not a lot of noise in this. There's actually, once they're focused on the maze pattern, like because they're not on a cell phone, thanks, the, uh, uh, they can concentrate on it. They can, they can make it specific. The, uh, 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 they're going through the maze, okay? Here's the finding. If you let that rat, you let that laboratory animal go to sleep and they enter into something that's called slow-wave sleep, which is uh, uh, non-REM 4 up to REM 1, uh, lots of ways to talk about slow-wave sleep, um, you see something absolutely extraordinary. They begin replaying what they learned that day, the maze-specific algorithm. Or not algorithm in this case, it's actually a sequence of, of, of depolarizing spikes. Thousands of times during the course of the night, and in a compressed form, over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, it hit the scientist looking at the list going, you know, there's some kind of learning processing that is occurring. Let's do this experiment. Let's wake up the mice at the time when they are deploying. Do you see where this is going? And if we wake them up and then just keep them awake so that they never have a chance to deploy this thousands of times of repetition, and then bring them back to the maze, how do they do? You know how they do, Jeff? They don't do well at all. In fact, they have to relearn it. Because the learning was occurring, not during the day. The learning was being held as a buffer during the day. The thing was being multiply reinstated at night. So there was a, all of a sudden it hit the research. And I can tell you that a very similar thing goes on in human beings. It's the exact same thing. And we do the same thousands of times compressed. But what appears to be occurring is that during the course of the day, you stack up in some kind of buffer the kinds of things you think are important. And then at night, if you can enter into a regular slow-wave sleep, you begin revisiting all those things you thought were important, and you just start replaying over and over and over and over and over again. One of the reasons why that might that makes some sense, uh, uh, it, it's, it's to the brain rule. That's why I'm calling it a truism has turned into a true. 
the, uh, you're literally seeing that the sleeping becomes a, very much a part of the learning process, all of a sudden we begin to understand why we sleep. We don't sleep so that we can rest. We sleep so that we can learn. And the only thing sleep provides is that you shut off all of the other signals that could potentially interfere. So you lock up your buffer for a, for a whole day's worth of activities, then you shut everything down. Nice model, huh? Shut everything down so that you can pay attention to the internal, the in psychological interiors of your experiences during the day and begin learning. And since with human beings, we grew our fangs not in our claws, but in our heads, it was very important that we pay a lot of attention to it. So maybe this is part of why also you said uh, people do better if they take a nap at 3 p.m. instead of uh, slogging through the day. The doctor's nap, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. In fact, there are, there are researchers back east that are advocating for National Nap Day. <laughs> so people learn that. You can show. Uh, there's something called the nap zone. And in the nap zone, uh, it usually occurs in the afternoon for most people where the circadian arousal system and the homeostatic sleep drive are fighting each other. It's a, it's a tug of This is called the opponent process model of sleep. And what it is is that you've got a drive that wants to keep you awake all the time. And you have a drive that wants to put you to sleep all the time. And they are, they are uh, thought of as biphasic curves going in the exact opposite direction. They meet in the afternoon. And during that time when uh, it's being decided whether you're going to get a good night's sleep or not is the nap zone. So the, a group of scientists at NASA... They actually did this with pilots first, but they're doing it in several different places. Since everybody gets sleepy, I can't believe we're doing this interview because we're right in your nap zone. Right. <laughs> and that's why I'm a little afraid of the heat in here because because that can make you even drowsier. And uh, the more information I give you, you know, you could just shut down. Even you'd be the sweetest kid in the whole world, but it still happened to you. Your publisher planned this, so maybe he hasn't read the book as thoroughly as you think he has. <laughs> no, the publisher has been very good because I'm an active research scientist, and this is the only time of the day I have. <laughs> and you're catching me in between my exercise time and the time I have to go give a big old lecture. <laughs> no, my public, Mark's terrific. He's, he's, he's got this down in spades. So if you allow a nap, though, a uh, 20-minute nap, uh, they were able to show about a 22 to 25% increase in overall performance uh, just right off the bat. And if you allowed a 45-minute nap, that performance uptick was stable for six hours. So it, it, you may have had this experience. A lot of people have had the intuitive experience of something you can show empirically. And that is if you take a nap, only 15, 20 minutes, all of a sudden you feel refreshed. You go, ah, I can go on with the rest of the day. And if you don't, you can spend three or four hours trying to struggle through your afternoon. And you can show in the nap zone that people don't do very well thinking-wise. Their problem-solving skills, this executive function stuff we're talking about, uh, doesn't work very well. You don't memorize things as well. You can sit there typing on your keyboard and look at the same line of code and go, on, you know, I'm stuck. I'm, so, I'm making my own little recursive loop right here, right here, right here. I'm going to sleep. Another factor that affects this rule uh, is called chronotype. Are you familiar with chronotype? Do you know what that is? Yeah. Um, the, in the literature, they're called larks and owls. Uh, the fancy scientific term is called early chronotype and late chronotype. Uh, it turns out that everybody's sleep schedule, everybody's sleep schedule is different from everybody else's, but they can be grouped into statistical categories. There are some people who are early chronotypes. A typical early chronotype wants to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. If they have their, they have their way, they don't have to worry about culture. The, uh, they uh, get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. And typically, they'd want to go to bed at 9 o'clock at night. They report being at their most robust cognitively in the morning. You would call them morning people, and the literature literally calls them larks. Okay? And they actually are more productive in the morning. Um, that's about 10 to 20% of the population. Another 10 to 20% of the population we call owls. 
they, if they have their druthers, would like to go to bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. And they don't want to wake up much before 11.30 in the morning. Anywhere between 11 and 11.30. They report doing their best work in the evening. You would call them night persons, and that's why the research literature calls them owls. So it's a difference between larks and owls. What I f- Larks tend to do pretty well in our culture because it works with the work schedule fairly well. But if you are an owl, my guess is, you can't show this in the literature, but it's, my, it's just my guess. I can actually see this in some of my uh, friends' classmates and some of my son's classmates, for that matter, too, and actually in some of the students I teach. Uh, um, I can sometimes pick out the late chronotypes. They look like they're lazy. They look like they're not focused. In fact, they're exhausted. Most people who are late chronotypes have an enormous sleep debt that they never really fully recover from. And my guess is, is that they, the teachers, when they're growing up in elementary years, call them lazy, call them unproductive, call them not motivated, when actually what they are is that they are harboring an unbelievable sleep debt. And the instant they can get to a learning environment that literally allows them to get up later in the morning and to go to bed in the wee hours at night, they thrive. They flock to it. And uh, 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 here's another way, you know, it's this cubicle idea of having brain science tear down things. Uh, Because you can assay for this. You can find out who's the early and late chronotypes. Uh, If I were to tear down the system and start it all over again, the very first thing I would do is do an intake interview and ask who's late, who's early. And then, and not only the students, but also there are teachers. So there are teachers that are early chronotypes and teachers that are late, and you just match them. And you guys, since this building, you know, that university and the other one I pay attention to are open, the buildings don't fall down like a house of cards at night. They're always available, and they usually keep the heat and the electricity on. They don't turn them off. They're unused, in my opinion during that time, and you could actually match the productivity. If you did that, you probably would reduce things like healthcare costs, because these people are no longer stressed, and they're getting a good night's sleep for them, and so the number of infectious diseases that they get gets lowered, and that you can show if you're getting a, if you don't have a lot of sleep debt. And my feeling is just that, uh, so from a business perspective, if you're just thinking about productivity costs, uh, uh, you will have a much less sick population. That's a kind of test that probably should be done, and see if it actually does change healthcare costs. You know, I've got to wonder that, you know, this whole podcast is about open source software. you got these thousands of people who work a job during the day, then they come home at night and they work on their own projects, and after a couple of years, suddenly we have databases, operating systems, all this stuff made from scratch that people wrote in the evening on their own time, maybe when their minds were uh, the most tuned for it. Exactly, and what they might say to their jobs is that they hate their jobs because it forces them to get up and to do some things, and, they, and they're living on coffee and they're living on all the types of strutting supports that might get them going. And as soon as they break free from it, they go back to their older schedule. I don't think brain science says very much to education and business. Jeff, I don't. And that should be a part of this interview. But by God, the things we know about now uh, are, are worthy of doing experiments to change some of the things. Because I can already see that a lot of it are designed, not with the brain in mind, but anti. In fact, if you wanted to design something, if you were an enemy of the human brain, and you wanted to make the, the worker the least productive you could, you would design something like a cubicle and have everybody get up in the morning at 6 o'clock and have everybody go to bed at, or leave the job at 5. Okay, so you also mentioned in the book that the male and the female brain are wired differently. That's right. We look at, uh, in computer science, a lot smaller, less proportional representation of women in computer science, and you look yes. in open source is an even smaller percentage. The most popular sure. podcast that I've done for the show uh-huh. downloaded, you know, 80,000 times was yeah. with a group of women talking sure. about, uh, you know, their lives in, in uh, 
development and, and writing oh, yeah, computer that software. All mails that downloaded it too. Yeah, probably. But uh, <laughs> there are many factors. It's not like we can just put our finger on on one thing. But do you think that this whole combination of society, businesses, learning, then then add on to that the male and female brain differences kind of makes an inhospitable environment for some uh, some of these practices. Yes. And I think there's both a strong social vent that has absolutely nothing to do with brain wiring, but everything to do with cultural prejudice, that are so pervasive that even exper- it, it trickles down and marinates even scientists, and it, it affects their ability to do experimental design. And they end up getting what they expected, not because they were uh, getting a nice, clean experiment and uncovered a difference. They uncover their own prejudices. So when you walk, I saved that rule for one of the last chapters in the book because I want to make it an object lesson. That you have to be, when you're walking the distance between a cell and a behavior, you are walking, you're walking something that is measured in light years intellectually in terms of the distance. We don't know a lot about how to connect those two, so you have to be careful because I'm about to do one. <laughs> there's only one that I know of that I think actually works. You can show there's 200, 300 separate neuroanatomical differences between the way men and women's brains are wired. That you can show. How that links to behavior, we have no idea. Let me give you one social prejudice, and then let's go to a biological one because I think there's both. Um, there's an interesting work of Deborah Tannen. Deborah Tannen has investigated for many years how men and women use language to see how they're different. Um, uh, you can actually show that even how they negotiate their social hierarchy depends on how they utilize their language. So men use it differently than women do. And something that she's been able to show in lots of different places, and I mentioned in the book, is something that we have lots of Deborah Tannen moments in my household because I have a 10-year-old boy and an 8-year-old boy. Here's, let me unpack what I mean by that. And that's what, I, it's a social difference that ended up us, uh, me doing an experiment in my son's classroom that I actually put in the book. And it shows the great uh, terror of watching social uh, prejudices in, infiltrate our point of view, if that makes sense. Um, here it is. Uh, 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 John, I'm gonna t- for readers listening at home, I'm taking this pen now. I'm going to throw it up in the air like my son would do. And for some strange reason, my Joshua and Noah get along. <laughs> Despite my best efforts, they actually do pretty well. And this is one of the reasons the way they get along when they negotiate their social hierarchy. Uh, Josh will throw this pen, which I've just thrown up into the, and he'll say, look, Noah, i got to throw this up to the ceiling. And Noah, they'll laugh and bond, and then Noah will grab it and go, oh, yeah? I can throw it up through the sky. And then they throw it up a little higher, and then Josh will grab it and go, oh, yeah? I can throw it up to the galaxy. And then whoever gets to God first, you know, usually wins. And so, uh, <laughs> in fact, one of them one day just grabbed the pen and went, God. <laughs> it's the end of the story. And Deborah was able to show that a lot of males do that. In fact, males, that's one of the ways males negotiate their hierarchy. You do that with little girls, you see something that will take your breath away. Because they also have social hierarchy. There's low status and high status little girls. But this is what happens on average. You, If they start doing this, one of them will take the pen and, and say, look, I can throw this up to the ceiling. And Josh, and the, and the, and the little, not to Josh, sorry, uh, the other little friend uh, who is also female will take it, grab it, and go, oh, yeah? I can too. It's not even in the same universe. Those differences turn out to be extraordinarily important in the classroom, and I'll show you why, and I'll tell you the, the kind of mini anecdotal experiment I did in my son's class. My son's teacher was deeply worried about something. Despite what the former president of Harvard says, math and science capabilities on the part of little girls' brains and little boys' brains are essentially identical. It's not true for language. 
little girls do language better than little boys do on average. And in fact, that's something you can show that percolates up into adulthood, including their ability to recover from strokes that hit the areas of the brain that are responsible for language. Uh, women can recover from them much better. And utilize, there's, just a, there's a different language facility. Not in math and science, though, to your point about software development and engineering and so on. Uh, um, here's what she saw, though. She was presiding over a social prejudice. She was watching in this fourth grade class, Jeff, the little girls were starting to do very poorly in the math and sciences. And the little boys were starting to get ahead in the math and sciences. And the little boys were not doing very well in the language arts. And the little girls were ahead. And so we were talking about this. And she is there anything we could do, John? She says, she knows what I do for a living. And I said, well, you could try the following experiment. And I asked her to make some observations and then went into another class. And I've made some observations in other classrooms before. And this is what I would see. Not in this class, but in another. This is what I would see. I would see, do you remember this, throw it up to the sky versus me too. The, I would see the little girls get some, if there was a language arts type question. Little girls would raise their hand first, because they're actually a little better than in this class they were. Little girls would raise their hands first and get it. And then they would look over and see if any of the little boys were doing it, see if there was any what. What do you think, Jeff? Competition. Or me too. Me too. Or me too, buddy. Didn't see it. The little boys were seeing that they could throw, the, the little girls was throwing this up to the sky, and they couldn't, they assumed the subordinate position, and what do you do if you're a low-status male? Well, you withdraw. All other things equal. You withdraw, and then you start cutting up with your friends and so on as a way of, that's a, oh, that's a pediatric way of withdrawal. The, uh, you're not, now, here comes the math and sciences, where they are equal. And so if the teacher asks, and this is what I would observe, when the teacher would ask a question of the math and sciences, the little boys were just as likely to raise their hands as the little girls. When the little girls would raise their hands, they would still look over and see the little boys looking for me too and not find it. But when the little boys could get it, they would look over at the girls and go, see, bonk, I got it, you didn't, ha, ha, ha. And you know what the little girls started to do? They do what any marginalized population starts to do. They began withdrawing, just like the little boys did in language arts. And you could see the disparity. All of a sudden, the little girls weren't even raising their hands for math and science. And you could already see their questions were not being answered, and they were marginalizing towards it. And everybody goes to what they're good at. And so if they feel like they're better at language arts than this strange terrarium they well, find themselves in, were completely equal. hence the social force that's exerted over a population. Pisses me off, actually. Okay, let's go to the bylaw. Then we'll be done. There is a difference. There is a behavioral difference that you can show. To do that, we'd have to talk about some biology, and I won't too much, but let's just say that uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, there are two sides of the brain, and some parts of the brain will, for stressful responses, handle the gist much better than the details. Okay. And there are areas in the brain, one's called the amygdala, which actually works with emotional processing uh, and the emotional details of processing. And what's interesting about that is this. If you do a, a non-invasive imaging experiment, you can do a horrible experiment. You can, actu you can actually watch somebody watch a slasher movie. Familiar yeah. with this? Yeah. Or in some cases, you can watch, there's horrible ones. There's like these surveillance videos you can get of people being creamed by trains. I'm sure you could you could get almost anything, but let's stay with the slasher movies. And they're they're tough to watch, especially on initial exposure. You just sit somebody down, and boom comes the slasher movie. You can actually watch something extraordinary. Men and women will process that stress in different areas of their brain. The men will process it in the area that is most responsible for the overall gist of what they saw, and not the details. Women will process it in the area of their brain 
that is responsible for the details and not the gist. And if you do a gist versus detail set of cognitive panels to try and ferret it out, you begin to see something extraordinary. Men get the gist of an emotional uh, of an emotional response and can't do the details at all, and women can do the details of the emotional response and, and suck at the gist. And that's something you can take home to the bank to get any brain to get any piece of data in my book. It has to not only be rep, uh, uh, done once in a, in a peer reviewed journal; it actually has to be replicated, hopefully in a non competing laboratory. In in the gender chapter, I had the additional requirement that it had to be replicated by a lab headed by opposite gender. So if you can still see the same result, that way you, you, you don't kill it, but you can dampen the social, because I'm deeply afraid of the marinating. But that you can show it has been replicated in a non-competing uh, uh, laboratory headed by an opposite gender uh, researcher. So it's something you can show. And what that suggests to me is details versus gist. You need, if you think of management, you need both. You can't just have somebody who's good at gist and not be able to see the emotional details in the landscape. And you need, you can't have somebody that just does details and not the gist. You need to have the interactions of both. And it also suggests something else that a lot of guys will pin on women, which I think is unfair. They'll often say, women are more emotional than men. You'll hear that a lot. You, you still hear that today. And I talk about being pissed off. A chapter that pisses me off is this chapter. The, uh, uh, um, uh, but what you might be able to say instead is this. They're not more emotional. They may be more emotionally aware and see more things and thus can react to more things per unit time. And if guys could see the same thing, they might also react with the same points of reference as the women, but they're not. So they look less emotional women look more emotional. Believe it or not, I gave this talk. When I have to unpack the MRI data and we, we have to go into it. But it's a group of design engineers at Boeing and they were up for it. The... Uh, uh, um, uh, and I gave this talk, and there were two uh, executives in training who were women in the back of the room, and they started to cry after I had mentioned this data, these data about uh, emotional versus not. And I went, oh, man. <laughs> you know, what did I do? In fact, I was giving the talk, and they were doing that, you know, when I was lecturing. And I went, I, I can lecture. I, I, I'm pretty seasoned now. But that got me. And I'm going, oh, man, what did I do? And we in the question-answer period afterward, and then eventually we all go up to, there's called the Afterburner Lounge, and then I, we just talk for a couple hours, actually. They were there in the very back, and they came up to me, and everybody else was gone. And we and we had a chance to interact, and I looked at him and I said, because as you now know, Jeff, I have no social graces, so I just went up to him and I said, you know, I something happened, you guys. What did I do? Did I, did I make you mad? Did I offend you? You know, what's what, what's up with those tears? One of them started crying again. And, oh, man, there it goes. The other one, though, uh, said, no, no, not at all, Dr. Medina, and said something else. It was the first time in my professional life in hearing you where I felt like I didn't have to apologize for who I was. That's why I wrote the book. End of interview. The Ruby on Rails podcast is sponsored by Atlantic Dominion Solutions, now providing multiple application servicing options with ADS Mantis, 24-7 monitoring and management of EC2 deployments, as well as a fully managed virtual hosting solution for Rails applications. Thanks also to Rails Machine for providing hosting and bandwidth for the show.